Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. You are probably well aware that there has been a bit of a bug going around the office. Oh, and yes. I think one of the major disseminators of said bug is Josh Clark from the <laughs> Stuff You Should Know podcast, and I've been urging him to go work from home, but he has been very brave and valiant and insists upon staying put in his cube. To the dismay of the rest of us. To the dismay of the rest of us. Thank goodness for um, <laughs> disinfectant hand soap. And, yeah, and, I remember, and remember to wash my hands every time. <laughs> exactly. No yeah. high-fiving Josh around the right, office right. these days. And we're very lucky because in this modern age, we understand that sicknesses are caused by these itty-bitty little microbes and bacteria that we can't see with our eyes but are very dangerous and sometimes deadly to our bodies. But civilization hasn't always had the luxury of this knowledge. We're talking about a story that happened around the turn of the century into the 20th century in New York City. Although the idea um, scientists were starting to get familiar with the idea of microbes like you're talking about, it took a little bit longer for the lay community to start, you know, wrapping their head around around this and the idea of sanitation in order to ward off those bugs. Exactly. And so while scientists were able to grasp this concept, they couldn't very well explain it and share the information with the lay people like Jane was saying. So today, when you cook chicken and you've been handling a a raw cutlet, you probably know to wash your hands afterward the same way that if you use the bathroom, you would wash your hands after that too. And this wasn't common practice, even in turn-of-the-century New York City. People just didn't understand that the consequences of not taking precautionary measures could result in death. And this was a bad time for that to happen because the the city was uh, struggling with a lot of different sicknesses at that time. Typhoid fever, smallpox, tuberculosis, diphtheria, and whooping cough. The Department of Health in New York City had its hands full. And typhoid is an interesting disease uh, where, like you were saying, if you don't wash your hands, it's easily spread. E- even if you cook the foods, like if you, if someone who uh, who is infected with typhoid and touches food, it, it might be okay after the food is cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's not cooked and the person who prepared the food is unsanitary, uh, then it could easily spread the disease. And that's because typhoid fever the bacteria that cause it, they're essentially dispersed through contaminated food and contaminated water. And the scary thing about typhoid fever is that it's a systemic disease. And basically that means that it affects your whole corporeal being, not just one organ, not just one body part. Your whole body is going to feel typhoid fever. So the bacteria that causes typhoid fever enters your body when you ingest this contaminated food or water. Then it spreads from your intestines to your lymph nodes, your liver, and your spleen. And as it's traveling throughout your bloodstream, the bacteria multiply. And you're not really aware at first that you have full-fledged typhoid fever. It manifests uh, gradually through a high fever, through weakness and delirium, and very, very strong bouts of diarrhea. And unfortunately, right before the diarrhea comes, constipation comes. So Mm. you may think you're getting better when you're able Mm. to use the restroom, but you're not. Mm. It's only going to get worse. And sometimes these little rose spots appear, and they're about a a quarter-inch big red splotches that show up on your stomach and your chest. And interestingly enough, children suffer less from the effects of typhoid fever than adults do. And if you guys are worried and looking at your hands and wondering the last time you washed them, um, well, you should do it anyway, you know, just to be (laughs) safe. But I think that uh, recent figures show that less than 400 cases are reported 
in the United States per year. And you can always treat typhoid fever with antibiotics, um, fluids through an IV and electrolytes. And after about two to four weeks, should be gone. You yeah. should be good. Not so much a problem anymore, but it certainly was in New York City around this time. And uh, during this time, New York City as a whole was struggling with it. But there was this one community that had managed to to uh, not get infected with it, and that was Oyster Bay, New York. But suddenly, it was popping up. And so this well-to-do family brought in uh, this man named Dr. George A. Soper. And he is an epidemiologist and a sanitation engineer. And he is very familiar with typhoid as a disease. And uh, he was basically just the man to figure out what was going on in this uh, nice beach community. So he goes in and he starts asking this family, you know, what are your eating habits? What's going on here? He starts investigating the food supply is like, or, or the uh, the water supply is that getting tainted with the sewage? And it wasn't. He investigated the oysters. As we mentioned, it was Oyster Bay community. So people thought maybe it was the oysters. And he said, no, they're cooked. And the people who didn't eat the oysters still got the disease. So what's going on here? And so he zeroed in on the waitstaff. And he knew that uh, it often came from uh, unsanitary people in the waitstaff. And he found out that one cook had left the family a couple weeks before he got there. And a couple weeks happens to be about the incubation period for typhoid. So um, even if people had just gotten sick, it still could have caused or come from her. This girl was named Mary Mallon that he started investigating this cook. And he knew that it was possible for people to carry this disease without suffering from the symptoms. And so Mary might have been just this kind of person because the family had dismissed her as an idea because she she didn't have typhoid. She wasn't showing any symptoms, but uh, Soper knew that it was still possible. And we should mention that Mary Mallon was a pretty tough cookie. She was an Irish immigrant born in 1869 in Ireland and came to the United States as a teenager. And she came by herself. And once she arrived in New York City, she lived with some family members. And once she was established in New York City, she became a very in-demand cook for some pretty affluent families. And as Jane was mentioning, she sort of left this slimy microbial trail wherever <laughs> she went because the families that she was cooking for, these well-to-do families were getting sick. And we know that in these communities, there was a little bit more attention taken to sanitary measures. And certainly their, their homes and their surrounding yards would have been a little bit cleaner than the main streets of New York City at this That's time. That's a good point. Yeah. So it's very strange to think, well, why are these families getting sick? Well, mm-hmm. fingers point to Mary Mallon. That's right. And so, uh, unfortunately, Mary had a tendency to not leave forward, adre- forward addresses for um, the places that she left. And so Soper was able to go back um, to places that she had left, uh, families that she had worked for before this family. And he, sure enough, he found that they, too, had been suffering from typhoid outbreaks. And uh, after that, he was pretty convinced he needs to track down Mary and test her for the disease. So he finally did. And he approached Mary in uh, the kitchen of where she was working at at the time. And he tried to explain it to her. Look, like, you you may not suffer from symptoms of the disease, but you may still carry it, and I need to test you for it. And apparently, as the story goes, she uh, did not take this news lightly, and she chased him out of the kitchen with a carving fork. And who knows what bedside manner this epidemiologist had, but basically he was going to have to check her urine and feces for right. traces of the disease. So um, I think Jane mentioned to me before, he might not have put it in a very gentlemanly or delicate way. So That's one can right. understand that Mary, tough cookie though she was, was offended. And we should mention, too, that as a prized cook, one of her special specialties was 
peaches and ice cream. And um, I don't know about you guys, but we eat ice cream cold in my family. We don't cook it. And one of the best <laughs> ways to destroy any symptoms of microbes from typhoid fever is cooking food with, with heat. Mm-hmm. But if Mary was serving this dish up to these families, then there's no chance that the disease could have been eradicated by proper treatment of food. That's right. So that was a really likely culprit, her ice cream and peaches. That's a good point. And also, um, Soper is, is, uh, he knows that Mary is probably the culprit here, but he can't prove it until he can bring her in and she's being very uncooperative. So he goes to the New York City Department of Health and asks for reinforcements and he brings up all his evidence. And sure enough, they give him a female inspector to go check this out along with police backup and an ambulance. So they come and uh, the female inspector knocks on the door with the policeman. Uh, Mary is actually the one who opens the door. So she looks and she knows that they're here to pick her up. And she flees. <laughs> she has the gall to just, she, she's not going to give up under any circumstances. And she flees. And it took about three hours for them to actually track her down in an outside closet. Um, and even on the way over to the hospital, apparently the female inspector had to sit on her because she was being so unruly. And at this time, there wasn't a really effective way to deal with people who had the disease or who were carriers of the disease. So New York came up with a solution in the form of a quarantine island. And Mary was sent to one of these places, uh, North Brother Island, and she was made to stay there. And... She was told after a few years that she could go back to living among society if she promised, 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 promised she would not cook anymore. And here's where the story takes an interesting turn, and you really have to think about this in an ethical sort of way. Here's a woman who's been sent against her will to live in a quarantine island, and she doesn't have the disease. She may not fully understand why she's there, and even from Mary's letters, we know that she was treated Almost like an an animal in a lab, she wrote, I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. People would come, medical interns, doctors, uh, sanitation workers, and just stare at her and try to figure out what was going on with her. And she felt like she was on display for no good reason. And when she returned to mainstream society, again, remember, she emigrated to the United States from Ireland. She may not have had many tools, many trades. She turned back to the one thing that she knew to survive, and that was cooking, even though she had been forced to promise she wouldn't do it. Yeah, and that's really what I think outrages people about this story. And it's interesting, uh, when she was on the island, or by the time she got there, the press had gotten a hold of this, which added to what you were saying, she became a peep show. And the whole public, especially in New York City, uh, really focused on this story. And there's this fascinating illustration, you can look if you Google Typhoid Mary and look at images, uh, there's this fascinating illustration of her cracking skulls into a skillet, and it tells the story of Typhoid Mary, like, as if she were intentionally giving all of her victims typhoid. So yeah, you're Right. She went back to cooking, at least after a couple years. We're not sure exactly what happened to her within uh, between when she was let go and when she started cooking again. But we know that there was an outbreak in a particular hospital and Dr. Soper, the same guy, uh, was um, asked to go in and investigate it. And sure enough, he saw his old nemesis, Mary, working in the kitchen. And this time, though, she did go kind of without a fight. She knew that the jig was up. She did. And this is where history really casts a discerning eye on the Typhoid Mary story. And for as many people in the press who dubbed her Typhoid Mary and made her out to be a murderer, there were just as many who... Uh, who looked askew with this story and wondered where where were civil civil liberties in this case? Why was no one defending Mary? Who That's was going right. to stick up for her? And 
Uh, I think that people look back at her as either a villain and this murderer or else someone who was unfairly scapegoated for a disease that was plaguing New York City. So yeah. really, it's up to you how you want to conceive of Typhoid Mary or Mary Mallon, I guess is the nicer way to refer to her. That's and right. And it's particularly important to, to, uh, to remember that she didn't have the symptoms. So even if she like saw the trail following her, she could have somehow convinced herself she didn't have it. She didn't believe the doctors. <laughs> she may have just wanted to survive and keep on cooking. Yeah. <laughs> so, for that measure, if you want any great recipes or information on diseases and more about Typhoid Mary, be sure to visit HowStuffWorks.com. And if you have suggestions for us for future topics or any feedback you'd like to send, send us an email at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 